0: Good morning. My name is Brent Strobel. I'm the youth pastor here at Evergreen, and I'll be sharing the sermon for today. So I'm going to start off with a story. Uh, the story starts off uh, when I was in high school. It was a Saturday afternoon, and uh, for some, I wanted to play tennis, and so I called up my friend. I'm like, let's go play tennis. He had a car. I didn't, so he, he came to pick me up. And uh, when he came to my house, he came in, and then we just kind of sat and talked on the couch for a bit uh, until we were ready to go. And while we were just sitting, hanging out in the house, uh, my mom suddenly got a phone call from her sister, and I could tell within seconds that it was a bad phone call. She received uh, this phone call. You could tell there was a look of fear and worry in her face, and after she hung up the phone, she said, Brent, there's something I need to tell you. Uh, your aunt called, and your grandmother was... Uh, she was just hanging out with your grandfather, and um, they were watching a movie, and she went to tell him something, and she couldn't communicate with her words, and they didn't know what, would happen, what was happening, and it was scary. So uh, they went to the hospital, and your grandmother has uh, a brain tumor, and it's cancerous. So we are going to get in the car as a family and go up and see her. And I, uh, for some reason, said, you know what, I already said I was going to play tennis, so I want to stay and play tennis. And so my family left in the car to go visit my grandmother in Portland, and I left in the car to play tennis with my friend. And my friend looked, he felt so uncomfortable about this. He's, he could just tell it was wrong. He's like, what are you doing? He, he told me, he's, he said, Brent, what's up? What's going on? Why, why aren't you going to see your grandmother? And what I said was I said, oh, because I know God's in control. He'll, he'll take care of everything. It will all be okay. So I don't need to worry. And he's like, well, don't you think you'll regret it if you don't go? And I said, nope, I won't because I don't need to. I, can, I trust God. I have great faith. And he said, okay. And the rest of the day played out. We played tennis, but it was just awkward. I mean, it, how could it not be awkward? Um, then when we got home, uh, my parents, they, they came to me and they're like, they, t- they told me, uh, why didn't you come? And I said, well, because I trust in God. Everything's going to be Okay. My mom said, well, actually, everything's not okay. Your grandmother has stage four cancer, and uh, and the doctors only are giving her a few months. And and I still, I didn't cry. I didn't show emotion in my face. I, 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 my mom describes it as a poker face. I just was emotionless. And I just said, it's okay. I know that God will work everything out. And I kept on saying this, and... Um, and there was a fakiness about the way I was acting. So that night, before I was going to bed, I think oftentimes before we go to bed, that's when we start asking questions. And I was like, what's going on? Like, am I supposed to feel sad, or what's happening? But at the same time, deep down, I was sad. And I think in retrospect, looking back on this moment, what was happening was that my theology of suffering and hardship was just too small for the reality of this event. I, sitting in church, had picked up bits and pieces. God's sovereign. He'll take care of everything. God's in control. Uh, He makes everything happen for good. And through these bits and pieces, somehow I formed this theology that had gaps. And so my theology could not... Meet what was happening in my heart, so I just kind of buried my feelings, and I think I avoided my feelings. Eventually, um, my through the talking with my mother, she's like, "Brent, I want you to go see your grandmother, and this is something you need to see." And so I went to see her, and I went to go see her, and it was hard because she, I mean, she was only 65. She was young. Before this, she had a full head of hair. Um, it was it was barely gray. Uh, and she she was a vibrant woman, and, uh, and and now when I saw her, she had gained rate, weight because of the steroids. She couldn't talk well. She was confused, and she was bald. This was hard. Um. Eventually, I think after experiencing this experience with seeing her, that allowed me to better understand that you know what, maybe I should I should express that this is painful. And I should deal with these feelings. And so four months later, after that game of tennis, I, um, I went to go see her as she was dying. And I was one of only three, three out of 16 grandchildren that was in that room. Uh, she had a lot of grandchildren, a lot of family, but I was in that room with her and I held her hand as she went cold and as I heard the death rattle. And it was, it was very painful. It was very surreal, and I think the the moment that is the most um, powerful in my mind was when my grandpa came in because he's a strong man and I've never heard someone that strong give such a wail. I remember what it was like. Uh, it was hard. It was painful. A lot of my cousins couldn't understand why I wanted to be in that room. And a lot of them told me later on in the funer- at the funeral, they're like, we're glad that we weren't in the room. That would have been too hard. But in the end, I'm glad that I was in that room because what I realized is that by dealing with that pain, by being in that moment of suffering, by going through all the emotions, it was only after that experience that I was able to say, God is good. That I was able to take joy in her life and her death. It was after going through all those emotions that I was able to say god is good i was able to do that without feeling fakie so uh like i said i think back to this moment how did i get to this moment and the only thing i can think about is that my theology of suffering was just too limited as i said i heard bits and pieces of god's story and how he how he deals with suffering in humans but I think the only pieces that I heard was aspects of God's transcendent nature. I was missing aspects of Jesus' immanent nature in my theology of suffering. Transcendence and immanence are words theologians use to describe a dual nature of God. One way you could put it is that the transcendence of God are all of his qualities that are so different from us. The fact that he's creator of the universe omnipotent and almighty, whereas his imminence are his qualities that describe God's closeness to us, his approachability. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul is playing the role of questioner and answerer. Paul is doing this because Paul is dealing with troubling issues of hardship, suffering, and loss. It seems as though Paul is in constant emotional and cognitive turmoil, one commenter says. In one minute, in Romans 8, Paul is praising God for his infinite love. Look at these words. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in the next moment, at the beginning of Romans 9, Paul says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. What is happening is that Paul is simultaneously full of joy to be a new creation in Christ, while at the same time, He knows that most of his beloved Jewish community has rejected the Messiah. In order to better understand his suffering and in order for the reader to better understand God's sovereignty, Paul seeks to gain God's perspective in the next three chapters. In Peter's sermon, the God card that he gave about three weeks ago on Romans 9, Peter pointed out to us that God's perspective is vastly different than ours. A cool fact that peter pointed out worth repeating is that there are more stars in the known universe than there are sands on this earth grains of sand on the earth and even crazier than that is that in one grain of sand there are more atoms in that grain of sand than there are all the stars in the universe wow how does a god like that the god the creator of these atoms how does he relate to us How does the infinite God relate his perspective to us? In Romans 9 through 11, God does this by playing the God card. God, in a sense, puts us in our place. God points out that those who have missed that Jesus was the Messiah were wrapped up in their entitlement and were blind to God's activity because they deemed themselves so righteous they were blind to Jesus and he was a stumbling stone in their path. You see, no one deserves salvation from the very beginning gods is a plan of mercy instead of fairness. Although we may deem ourselves worthy, our judgment of ourselves is partial and false. And it is only when we realize how deprived and needy we are that we can take Jesus by the hand and let him lead us to salvation. God's answer in Romans 9 through 11 is to play the God card. And this is the God card, that he is God and we are not. We owe everything to God. Our scripture passage for today, Romans 11, summarizes the God card well. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This God card of a verse is about transcendence. God, God's almighty transcendence allows us to take comfort in God's sovereignty. Isn't it nice to know that no matter how screwed up this world is, God has a plan? I love that thought. However, as great as God's transcendence is, without God's imminence, the picture is not complete. How was Paul able to get to his conclusion at the end of Romans 11? How was Paul able to say, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I believe it starts with Paul's lament at the beginning of Romans 9. This is his lament. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul has a connection with God, a closeness that allows him to audaciously say he wishes he were cut off from Christ if somehow, if somehow this would allow his brethren to meet Christ. All this to describe his anguish. Paul asks a lot of questions in Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9, why has Israel rejected Christ? In verse 14, he asks, is there injustice in God's ways? In Romans 11, verse 1, has God rejected his people? I think it's not too far of a stretch to say this is not the first or the last time that Paul has questions for God. Paul had a lot of sorrow in his life, we know. At one point, Paul says he wishes he was not on the earth. He wishes God would take him away from this world. At another point, Paul describes having a thorn in his flesh, a torment from Satan. He prays three times for his thorn to be taken away, and it is not. God's answer is that his grace is sufficient for Paul. It is this very act of Paul being able to express his sorrow, ask these questions, that brings us to God's second answer to human suffering. God's first answer, of course, is to play the God card, to point out his perspective. But the second way in which God answers the question of human suffering is he draws us close to him, and he validates our experience. He listens to our woes, and he enters into relationship with us. Our God is not a far-off God. He cares about what we find to be difficult. Notice Paul doesn't think twice to admit his anguish at the thought of his fellow Jews possibly missing out on salvation. Also, Paul prays not once, but he prays three times for this thorn in his flesh to be taken away. Paul has a faith that allows him to simultaneously believe in God's goodness and glory while admitting his sorrow, his anguish, and his frustrations. Paul doesn't have to put a smile on and pretend that everything's going to be okay. Paul is able to do this, I believe, because he is a Jew, And he is drawing on a rich tradition of lament. Laments are a large portion of the book of Psalms. In fact, over half the book of Psalms are laments. In the book of Psalms, that was their worship book. That was their hymnal. These were songs they sang in community together. A lament means to cry out in grief, sorrow, mourning, or regret. Biblical laments come from the people that are afflicted and they're directed at God within a community of faith faith laments are honest and they tell the truth about one's suffering and pain they seem offensive and it requires a great deal of faith to pray a lament they hold god's transcendence and his imminence in paradox and one of the most famous laments in the bible comes from the book of job job is a man who goes through a lot of sorrow At the beginning of the book of Job, we find this guy named Job. He's described as a blameless man. He's upright and he fears the Lord. He had a wife, seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and many servants. Now that means he has a lot. That'd be like if someone had... 10 mercedes a few maseratis they had like five homes you know a lot he has a lot of assets not only was he a righteous man but he's doing pretty well in life now the devil asked god if he would be allowed to tempt job and god gave him permission and so what follows next is the devil's attempt to tempt job into being unfaithful to god this is what happens next in Job one thirteen through twenty. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, "The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabines attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you." Now while he was speaking, another also came and said, "The fire of God." Fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of this house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and he tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. Suddenly everything Job has is taken away from him. The only thing he has left is his wife and four servants that have escaped these four great calamities. In anguish, he shaves his head. And then in the next chapter, to add insult to injury, he receives boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. His friends hear of his misery. And so his three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite, come to comfort him, or so they think. In chapter 3, a pattern is set up that lasts all the way to Chapter 38 job laments in anguish and his friends rush in to point their fingers and give their advice this is a picture i found a painting of job and god and his three friends and as i tell the story it will make more sense so job starts lamenting this is what he says that the day perish on which i was born He's expressing how great it would have been if his mother had a miscarriage and wishes he would have died at birth to avoid his turmoil. His friend, Eliphaz, responds that mankind is not just before the infinite God, and surely Job has done a few bad things that warrant his misfortune. Eliphaz is nervous that Job is overplaying his innocence. Job's friends tell him not to question God, that God works all things together for good. Job responds in Job 10. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Job refuses to listen to his friends. He says he will question God. He will demand answers from God. And to this, his friend Zophar rebukes him, saying, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? In essence, what Zophar is doing is he's using the God card to silence Job because he's worried that Job is out of place. Job ignores Zophar. He ignores his use of the God card, and he continues... But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. God hands me over to the ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me, and he has grabbed me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. His arrows surround me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open, and he pours out my gall on the ground. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I may come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely God would pay attention to me. Wow, can you imagine saying those bold words to God? Can you imagine that? Has anyone said, Where are you, God? Where are you? I'm hurting. It seems like you're absent. All these things are going wrong in my life, and you're doing nothing. Where are you? Why are you letting this happen to me? To Job's complaints, his friends say, Why should you turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? What is a man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Job's friends are offended. They're calling him wicked for speaking against God. They tell him to stop arguing. They ask, who are you to speak to God? Man is like a maggot next to the Almighty. They use those words. They get mad at Job for his exaggerated sense of innocence. It's offensive. Finally, at chapter 38, God has heard enough. God has heard Job's demands for an audience with God. He has heard Job's list of grievances, and he has also heard Job's friends lay down the God card again and again and again to try and silence Job. In chapter 38, verse 2, God says this to Job's friends. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God calls Job friends ignorant and wrong. And then God answers Job's questions. God launches into a monologue for the next three chapters describing his glory. It is one of the longest monologues of God in the Bible where he's just laying down all the things he has done. I'm just going to give you a few of the highlights. This is what God says to Job. Where were you when I laid down the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Have you ever in your life Commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on a land without people on it, on a desert without a man in it? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretches his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? God very powerfully shows his transcendence, pointing out the creation of the earth, natural phenomenon, and creature after creature. God points out that he does so much more than just his interaction with humanity. God takes care of creatures that humans have never seen or discovered, and He waters a desert where humans do not live. God is far beyond the human perspective. He does so much more. And to this, Job says Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. When God plays the God card, It functions to create wonder in the recipient. By seeing a God so much bigger than Job, Job is able to realize that God could make a plan out of what Job sees as only sorrow. After this encounter, God comes to Job's friend, Eliphaz. He comes to Job's friend, Eliphaz, and this is what he says in Job 42, 7 through 8. My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Job's friends, take the sacrifice to Job. Job intercedes on their behalf and God listens to Job forgiving his friends. Right after we have one of God's most powerful displays of transcendence and glory, he goes to Job and he says, you were right. You were right to speak to me and about me the way you did. And furthermore, God tells Job's friends they were wrong to speak about God the way they did. God said that Job's friends' words kindled a wrath in him, and if they did not make a big display of sacrifice, God would give them what they deserve. And not only do they need to make a sacrifice, God will only listen to Job's prayer on their behalf. Suffice it to say, Job's friends must have been stunned. After all, much of what they said was good theology. It was, in fact, theology that actually exists in Proverbs as wisdom. Much of the words Job's friends said, we have been reading in Romans 9 through 11. So what does this mean? How is it possible for such dissonance and incongruity to appear in the Bible? Well, in order to understand this, all you have to do is look at the genre. Laments are not doctrine. Laments are not a place where there is a a big systematic theology being developed like we see more in Romans. What's happening in Job is that it's a lament. Laments in the Bible are a person seeking to be open and honest with God about what's in their heart. God already knows what's in our heart before we speak words. So why would we hold back? Can't God handle our sorrow, anger, and grief? Does God get offended so easily? If a person isn't able to speak their dark thoughts to God, then where do they turn? You see, human suffering is fertile soil. It's fertile soil for either despair or for hope to be born. And if a person turns to biblical lament, then hope, I believe, can be born. Lamenting a God within a community can give a voice to an isolated sufferer. By joining in with a biblical witness in a whole history of people giving laments, a sufferer can realize that others have felt the same pain that they do. And lament allows the relationship with God to deepen and to be enriched. After the period of lament is over, a person is able to see that God is a God who wants to be in relationship with them. And this gives the sufferer hope. That is why the book of Job, and most biblical laments, end in an affirmation of how wonderful and almighty the creator is. This is why Roman 9 starts with anguish, And Romans 11 ends with the affirmation of God's might. The two are linked. However, if a person feels they cannot turn to God or that their prayers of lament are stifled within their faith community, people turn to isolation, depression, and despair. People might turn to self-harm and destructive habits and very possibly might even relinquish their faith. Job's friends sought to quiet Job because they heard negativity and grief in Job. And they could simply not handle it. What they heard from Job was negativity, and they wanted Job to think positive. Laments in the Bible can describe God as cruel, unforgiving, indifferent, and powerless. They also make exaggerated claims about the sufferer's goodness and innocence. They seem to spout a misunderstanding about God and about oneself. Job's friends wanted to stifle Job because it sounded like he had bad theology. So they fought what he was saying with their good theology in order to silence him. They rushed in quickly to defend good doctrine. Job's talk made them nervous. Luckily, Job had such a strong faith that he did not allow himself to be silenced. For if he was silenced, if Job did agree with his friends, he would have ended his dialogue with God. You see, Job's friends were trying to get Job to stop complaining and being ungrateful towards God. But if that's all that was in Job's heart, and he couldn't say that to God, then what could he say? All he could could do would be to put on a smile and develop a shallow and artificial faith where he spouts off the right doctrine, but he isn't connected to God in his heart. God knew this, and this is why he said Job's friends said what was wrong of God. They said God did not want to hear Job's pleading for argument with God. And they were wrong. God did not want Job to hold back. God wanted Job to empty his heart. And that is why God said that Job spoke of me what is right. For it was right for Job to share his feelings, even if they were as harsh as declaring that to him God seemed merciless and absent. It was right for Job to say these words and say that he would question God. It is in God's validation of Job's monologue that God shows his imminence. God validates Job because God desires relationship with us. Notice God doesn't really answer any of Job's questions. He doesn't give him a formula. He doesn't give him doctrine. He doesn't say, well, this is, you know, here's A, B, and C, why you suffer. What God does is he shows the God card. He puts God's otherness and Job's finiteness into perspective. And in addition to that, he offers the invitation for a close, open, and honest personal relationship. In addition to the book of Job, laments continue to ring out throughout the entire Old Testament. We see them in the Psalms, in Lamentations, in Amos, in the book of Habakkuk. And one of the most common refrains in these laments that happens over and over again is people say, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you let Israel suffer? How long, O Lord, will Israel's Enemies be at her throat. How long, O Lord, till you come, how long, O Lord. Finally, in the gospel, these laments refrains are answered, both with transcendence and imminence, in the most powerful act of the incarnation. God displays his transcendence with the act of the virgin birth, and in the most intricate blend of transcendence and imminence, God becomes a man. In Philippians two, six through seven, this is what we see. And in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Can you get more imminent than that? God's answer to human suffering in the gospel is not to just validate humankind's suffering and experience, but he joins in our experience of suffering with us. God came and walked amongst us fully human fully divine, putting on flesh. He experienced all the emotions we do, the sorrow, the pity, and the anger. And when Jesus was living out his ministry, he did miracles. He walked on water. He experienced the transfiguration. He challenged our human perspective. He showed us God's perspective. He asked us questions such as, what is family? Who is good? And what really matters in life? Yet, Jesus also ate and drank And he slept and he had a circle of friends and he wept. And he wept especially when he came to the grave of his friend Lazarus. And on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was nervous and filled with anxiety to the point that he sweated blood. Jesus, who was in his very nature God, asked God to take the cup from him. He asked if there was another way. He was honest with God, yet he knew there wasn't another way. And so... Jesus humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And on that day of his death, he experienced excruciating pain. He experienced agony and woes that were too great to bear, not just pain in his body, but pain in his heart and his soul. And so with Jesus' last breath, he expressed what was in his heart out loud in the only way he knew how. He recited the first lines of a famous lament and surely all the Jews there would have known that he was reciting this lament and would have read all of the words in this lament in their heads because they memorized these psalms. And this was the words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So uh, one last story. Last summer, I was a, ho- a hospital chaplain, an intern chaplain at Good Samaritan Hospital in pialop Washington. Um, it was a very stretching and growing experience for me, and I certainly had my share of uh, tears and saw other people who had tears. Uh, one, one woman that stuck out to me was a woman who I will call uh, Margaret for this story. Uh, I was walking the, ca- the hall of the cardiac care unit, and I was looking at my sheet of patients. And uh, all the sheet said was that she was 85 and that she came in because of artilia uh, AFib, artilia fibrillation. I can't really say the word. Um, but so she had AFib and she was 85. So I went into the room and I sat down with her. I could soon tell that she was blind because she wasn't really focusing on me, but in my direction. And I said, hi, Margaret, how are you? She said, oh, I'm good. I said, I'm the chaplain here, uh, intern chaplain at the hospital, and I was wondering if you would like to talk with me. And she said, yes, I'd love to talk with you. So we got to talking, and uh, she said that she was in there because she had a heart attack. And I said, was that experience scary for you? And she said, yes, it was. But luckily I had God to be with me. And I said, that's so good. I'm glad to hear that. And then we uh, just kept on talking. We talked about her life. And soon I found out that the house she was living in currently was the house that her husband died in. And then after her husband died, two years later, her sister moved in. And then a few years after that, her sister died in the house. And then after that, more siblings of hers died and some of her kids died. And then she became blind and developed cancer. And so here she was in this hospital bed. It seems like everything in her life is being ripped away from her. Her husband her siblings, her kids, her vision, her health, soon her life. I was thinking, what is this 25-year-old young guy going to say to her? Um, So I said, just keep on talking with her. And so we talked some more, and I was like, well, how did you deal with this pain? And she said, well, I had God, and that helped, but every once in a while I got angry at God, even though I knew I shouldn't. I said, why shouldn't you? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, well, if that's in your heart, why shouldn't you get angry at God? And um, she kind of gave me a confused look. So then I, sta- I shared with her the story of Job as I shared with you. I was like, look, all these things happened to Job. He asked all these bold questions. He wanted an answer from God. He wanted to know why, his, why he was hurting in life. And Job's friends tried to quiet him but God said he was right to ask those questions. So I said, you are right to ask questions if they come in your heart. You need to ask those questions. And soon she clutched my hand and she cried and cried and she just bawled. And it was probably, it was a long time. And I just sat with her as she cried. And then she said, thank you. That was healing for me. And I left the room. And it was such a powerful experience that I, c- I couldn't not go back into her room. So she was in the hospital for about a week and I went two times more. And the second time I went into that room, she looked in my direction and she said, Brent, I've been praying to God longer and deeper than I have in a long time because now I know that I can tell God what's truly on my heart. And so that's just a story for you guys to, to think about of the power of being honest with God and how when we're honest with God, that brings us to a point where we can better say that we know that God works all things to good. So an application point for today as you go out. Like Job and Margaret, I ask that you express what is ever on your heart to God. Do not hold back. Only once you deal with your sorrow or anger Can you confidently affirm our scripture passage for today? Can you confidently realize how almighty, how sovereign, and how great God is? Another thing, as Easter comes, please attend the Good Friday service. I think usually it's a lot easier for us to get stoked about Easter because it's bright, it's light, there's all this glory and transcendence. But remember that it's in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that we see what it means for Jesus to be the incarnation. In Good Friday service, we get to see a God who suffers with us, who joins in our human suffering. We join in lament and the darkness. And this, I think, allows us to appreciate Easter even better. By seeing a God who suffers with us, it creates a seedbed for hope, and it makes God's glorious transcendence in Easter all that much more better and powerful. Also, Allow others to lament. Know when and when not to use the God card that we've seen in Romans nine through eleven. We have so many Job walks, Job's walking amongst our midst, both in church and outside of church, and many of them are in silenced by well-intentioned God-honoring Christians. Sometimes we are too quick to jump in and spout our right doctrine. We are too nervous of God being attacked, and too ready to defend a God who might not really be threatened. What we deem threatening, God very well may deem a part of the healing process. We need to allow a space for people to share their laments and be supported. That way, hope can grow in their hearts. People won't need to turn to isolation, depression, and harmful habits if they can turn towards God in their sorrow and God and the community of the church. Finally, this morning, as we take communion consider both the transcendence and imminence of God. Consider how communion is an answer to human suffering. It's a display of transcendence where the Almighty God is doing something powerful in this worship service, who, which is put on by humans. And in communion, we realize our finiteness and our need for God's supreme mercy. Also in communion, we have an invitation for a close, imminent, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen.